0: This morning, we got to see several students and several others profess to their faith in Christ, and the fact that when they die, they know they won't stand before God and be found wanting because they're found in Christ. Just minutes ago, news broke that Kobe Bryant died. He was involved in a helicopter accident, in his personal helicopter, and everyone in his helicopter is dead, including him. Maybe it is, but it doesn't look like it. Someone said it was a lie. Pretty reputable news sources are reporting that it happened in Calabasas. His wife wasn't on board, but that he was, he was and that he's gone. I want you to, for a moment, to think that that is 100% true. Maybe it, I, I have no reason to doubt it. There's no reason to doubt it. I looked it up before I came up. Got it, it's on Fox. It's on all the major news outlets. It doesn't seem to be a hoax. So if Kobe Bryant is dead, who is strong, powerful, probably had the best helicopter money could buy. Who's to say that you won't stand before God by the end of this day? That there won't be some freak accident that happens in your life that puts you face-to-face with your maker. In fact, there was, some of you probably already heard, a student of ours who came face-to-face with death and lived to tell the story. But that was only by God's providence. She very well could have died. Today's text asks an important question and I want to help you answer. And it's how do we stand before God and not be found lacking, not be found wanting, but but to know what is enough? And as I have it on your on your, your paper there, loving God and loving others isn't enough to stand before God and be found satisfying. Today's text is Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. We're going to look at it very quickly. Time is of the essence, but I want to point out to you that what's happening here is the third of three questions for Jesus. Each of those questions is meant to trap and trip him up, to help Jesus be exposed as the fraud that he is, or at least so they think. And so this very last set of questions comes from one man who's a scribe. The scribe is coming to Jesus and giving Jesus one of the most challenging questions of the day. It was a question that most people had already figured out how they might answer, but here's how it begins. He comes up to him, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. Again, this is the third of three interactions with Jesus. And this is, by the way, still on Wednesday of Passion Week. We know two days from now he's going to be hung on a cross. But this is before then. Third question, he says, okay, Jesus, um, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And with one fell swoop, Jesus offers you something that most people say, well, that sounds nice. That's good. I like that. But what Jesus intends to uncover here is something far greater than just saying, what's the most important law? He's saying, here, let me put an impossible weight upon your shoulders. Feel this out and see how you do with that. Point number one, you need to feel the impossibility, the the impossible weight of fulfilling the law's commands. And if Jesus were to narrow down all 613 commandments from the Old Testament and put it in just two, which is what he did, Love God and love others. You ought not to turn away from that and say, well, that sounds easy. I'll do that. Jesus is not intending for this guy to walk away and say, yeah, that sounds like I can, I can take care of that. Impossible feats of human strength have been seen before. The, 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 the heaviest, you know, uh, one of the heaviest squats is 1,210 pounds. The, the, the current record for human, a man's deadlift is 1,273.2 pounds by that same guy. If you want to look at the the women's heaviest deadlift, 854 pounds, Becca Swanson. We're looking at whether or not humanity has the ability to run a a sub two-hour marathon. The one who's technically beaten it, although yet not officially beaten it, is a man by the name of Eliud Kipchoge. He's working really hard to beat the two-hour marathon. Can you imagine that? Running 26.2 miles in under two hours. Speaking of feats of impossibility, Dean Karnazes has run 350 miles nonstop, which took him only 80 hours and 44 minutes. I can do it faster. I'm going to. And most people, when they look at things like this, that's exciting. You know, what, what are the real limits of human Uh, possibility. You got posters like this that talk about you can do it. If you believe in yourself, you can do this. You can can do whatever you set your mind to. But the problem with that is when we export that same thinking to God. Yeah, maybe you have a few pounds to lose, or you want to build some muscle, or you want to ace or SAT. Sure, go for those things and hit perfection, whatever that is in your arena. But when it comes to the way that we approach God, we can't think of it the same way. In fact, the one guy who did have the I can do it before God attitude was soundly condemned by Jesus. This guy comes. Before him, tells the parable of someone who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10 Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the, the most religious of the religious, righteous before others, and the other, a tax collector, scum of the earth. Scum of the earth. Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus God, thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer, even like this filthy, disgusting, wretched, stinky tax collector. I am righteous, I have attained your commands, and I'm so thankful that you made me attain your commands. So grateful that you made me so much better than this guy right here. How does Jesus respond to that? Well, actually, he's not done yet, he's still boasting. I fast twice a week and I give times all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, he will not even get close to God. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to the heavens because he's just so ashamed of who he is. He's downcast, he wouldn't look at heaven. Beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Like he's beating his breast because he's so moved by what he's saying. He's not faking it, he's not there to perform. He's saying, God, I know who I am. I am the scum of the earth. Be merciful to me, a sinner. One says, I can do it. If I put my mind to it, I can be right before God. The other says, I can't do it. I know I can't do it. Please show mercy, God. If you were to judge me according to the law's commands, I would be toast. And the the thing I want to point out is that when Jesus gives us the law, it's not meant to make you feel good and say, yeah, I can do that. In fact, Jesus is commanding us to be perfect perfect. And he, he goes on to describe what kind of perfection that looks like. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He starts off with fundamental knowledge of God, and he says you need to know this aspect of him. But think about this. If you were to say, okay, n- is that all that's important to know about God? Of course not. It's the beginning. God is one. There's no other gods besides him. You owe allegiance to this one God. And by the way, you better know this God if you want to please him. If you try to take out someone on a date and you know they hate cats, don't give them a cat and ask them on a date, right? It's the same concept with God. When you're trying to please God, you do it according to who he is, the knowledge of God. And when Jesus says, hear Israel, uh, know that your Lord is one, he's saying, know your God. He, he's owed allegiance, but know who that God is. And furthermore, not only should you know God, but you should love him. Jesus says, love the Lord your God, verse 30 with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That is to say, everything about you ought to love God all the time in perfect measure, never diluted. You ever have diluted Kool-Aid? It's not good. Kool-Aid that is diluted, they, put, they say put two scoops for every eight ounces. You put one scoop in those eight ounces, it tastes good. Drink it, spit it out. Pfft. Your love for God ought to be like undiluted Kool-Aid. It needs to be perfect. Passionate, unceasing, never ending, not having one iota of lessened perfection. And anything less than 100% pure, undiluted love for God in heart, soul, mind, or strength is unacceptable to God. Have you ever had this experience? Please don't tell me I'm alone. You're praying to God, doing a holy, righteous thing. You're praying to God, and even in your prayers, you sin, you think an unrighteous thought. A jealous thought, an unholy, an angry thought, or whatever it is kind of thought. You have an image in your head that just pops up, and you're like, I was praying, God, what happened? I was praying, and I can't, I can't even pray righteously. Ugh! Or if you're singing a song about Jesus, and it's a song, that you like the song, but even in that song, you're, you're still distracted, and you're thinking about something that you shouldn't be thinking about. That's not loving God perfectly. If you don't love God that way, let me tell you this. The law is not your friend. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, You failed. You fall woefully short. It's like the guy who's trying to jump over the bar with a thing. You know, he runs and he does a thing. You know what I'm talking about. I don't want to get technical. He runs. Thank you, the pole vault. (laughs) I knew that. I I totally knew that. I just did if you guys knew that. He runs up, and it's set at seven feet, and he doesn't even make it off the ground. (laughs) Trips over himself, and he breaks his leg. That's us. Love for God, 10. We can't even get off the ground. By the way, if your love for God, you think, oh, I'm doing pretty good in that area. You can't divorce your love love for God from love for others. Your, Your love for others ought to be perfect. Jesus said, not only should you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he also said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Some people might say, well, that's, that's proof positive that we need to love ourselves. We need to accept ourselves. We need to embrace ourselves and talk about how great we are. Wrong. Jesus is saying in the same way that you naturally look out for number one, you need to take that same mentality and look out for everyone else. in fact, Jesus goes so far as to say, not only should you look out for everyone else, but it's not just your friends. It's also your enemies. You and I, let's be honest, don't even do a good job of loving the people that we'd like much less loving our enemies. It's hard for us even to be selfless to the people that we really, really do love, isn't it? The people that we love the most, we still struggle to love well. And Jesus is saying your love for them should be connected to God and it needs to be perfect. Again, undiluted, selfless, sacrificial. It shouldn't be the kind of love that people can point a finger at and say your love is selfish, I can tell. Jesus is saying your love for him and your love for others are not two commands, they are one And if you have broken one, you've broken the other. You've broken any part of this. If your love is anything less than perfect, it's unacceptable. If you don't love your friends with perfection, if you don't love your parents with perfection, if you don't love your enemy with perfection, guess what? The law is against you. So when Jesus says, what's the greatest command? Thank you for asking. It's love God perfectly, exhaustively, and love your neighbor the same way. Not in the same way you love God, but love them the way you love yourself. How would you feel with that? You're going to find out how the scribe responds, and I want you to pay special attention to how Jesus responds to the scribe's response. Before we go there, though, again, the one thing I need you to shun and give this stiff arm to is the thinking that you are, in and of yourself, sufficient. The wrong-headed thinking is that I'm enough. When I stand before God, he's going to give me a perfect 10 just because he likes me. I'm a good person. I'm 80% good, as you heard some, someone say in their testimony. I'm 80% good and I'm only 20% bad. No, incorrect. The standard is perfection and anything less than that means you get a zero. It's a pass or fail. And the pass or fail is not contingent upon how good your works are. We'll talk about why that is in a second. But here's the thinking today. This is a popular, not a popular blog. This is a blog about Zen Buddhism. So this is a screenshot of the guy's post and he's commenting about the good law of loving God and loving others. The good, he's commenting on the, the golden rule. And you'll notice that what he says here is profound. This is a Buddhist, a Zen Buddhist, which is a popular thinking today, popular thinking. He says this, now those actions, loving God, loving others, will undoubtedly be good for the people you help and are kind to. That's good for them. Loving them is going to take care of them. But you'll also notice a strange thing. People will treat you better too. So beyond that, though, you will find a growing satisfaction in yourself. A belief in A knowledge that you are a good person, and you should trust in? Wow. See, we're not making this up here. The Bible's not talking into a void of like, oh, no one thinks that, Pastor Rod. No one thinks that perfect. Incorrect. People have the, we actually, let's not talk about those guys, us guys. We have a problem, and it's that we think that we are good enough before God. We downplay our sins, and we upplay our righteousness. That's always going to be the human problem people have a difficult problem. Man, I'm so grateful that in the testimonies, uh, two out of the three baptizees talked about hell. And I thought, man, if someone's visiting in the audience here. They're going to they're gonna struggle with that. In fact, if you're a star football player, you might also struggle with that. He says, quote, I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. And of course, because he's a sound theologian, everyone who listens to this guy understands. He knows exactly what he's talking about, right? obviously jesting on that. But the point is, he, he, he only is uh, communicating the sentiment of most people. Why, why would Christians serve a God like that? Why would you even dare entertain a God like that? He continues, what type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being wants to condemn his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all of this? He closes, you know, religion could be a crutch for most people. It can be something that people have to have to have to make themselves feel better. Because it's set up binary. It's us and them, saved and unsaved, heaven and hell. It's enlightened and heathen. It's holy and righteous. That makes a lot of people feel better about themselves. Now, here's my point. That's not true. Christianity is not a religion to make you feel better about yourself. Unlike any other religion that you can throw this is not a meant, obviously, it's not meant to make you feel better about yourself. It's meant to make you feel better about God, about Jesus suffering and dying on the cross for your sin, which is really the point. Jesus responds to this this, this scribe. Here's how the scribe said... (laughs) Listen to how he responds. A scribe says to him, you are right, teacher. Now just think about the irony. is <laughs> a human scribe saying to the son of man, son of God, deity incarnate, you are right, God. You have truly said that he is one, God is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's right about this. Now, he's pointing to something important here. The scribe is saying, you know what, I understand, and it seems like you're saying, this, you're saying the same thing too, teacher, that what God really cares about is not the sacrificial system. He doesn't care about your offerings. He doesn't care about you giving him the best bull and the fatted calf. He cares most about the inner reality the inner person. And if you were to love God perfectly and love your neighbor as yourself, you wouldn't need the sacrifices. You might offer, you might offer something to God out of, a, out of a love for him, but you wouldn't need the sacrifices. More important. Verse 34. Notice what Jesus says in verse 34. Critical. And Jesus saw that he answered wisely, and he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Not, you're in. Not, that's a really good answer. Come on inside. Follow me. He didn't say that. He said, you're not far. Why? Because Jesus, again, the point is to say, look, the law is bondage. The law is not meant to make you feel good about yourself. It's meant to say, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. Jesus essentially, throughout the whole gospel of Mark, is inviting people, here. leave your burden behind and come follow me and experience the freedom of trusting me. Experience the freedom of faith. That's the point. Now, Jesus doesn't say that in this passage. You'd have to read beyond the passage to get, that, to get that out of it. But I want to point to you that he says you're not far from the kingdom. Why? Because you're not in the kingdom if you think the law is what you need to get in. When I was a young man, I used to visit my dad at Chino Prison. They actually call it California Institution for Men. Make it sound a lot nicer, right? That's kind of, but what I noticed about the place is that it's cold, it's stale, it's got a, and sterile. It's got lots of gray. Lots of gray. Some of your schools look this way too. Lots of gray. (laughs) Lots of gray walls. they got gray, dark gray, almost gray, super gray, lighter gray. I mean, lots of gray. I was going through the metal detectors. It was the first time someone had to pat me down and make sure I wasn't bringing anything. It was the weirdest experience of my life. And because I went there often enough to see him, and I got used to the routine, and the tables are like stiff and plasticky. And it's like, man, it just feels so terrible to be in that arena. I mean, we, even had, we had to bring quarters for the vending machines, and so they'd make us bring quarters in a plastic baggie, a Ziploc baggie, so they could see what's in the bags and couldn't hide anything. They would empty mom's purse out, scrutinize every detail to make sure we would not bring anything in we shouldn't be bringing in, and on and on it goes. I felt so constricted, even just in the visitor lounge. This is a prison visitor lounge. I can imagine what my dad felt like being in there 24-7. Freedom is something we often talk about as a a, a human. We love the idea of freedom. In fact, Pharrell Williams a couple years ago did a song all about freedom, saying freedom is basically doing whatever you want to do, however you want. If you want to do it, you should be able to do it. Hey, And I'm all about human rights, but his concept of freedom is broken. Scripture talks about freedom in a different way. Scripture talks about freedom from something. uh, There's a song we sing, Long my imprisoned spirit lay. You said imprisoned. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I always think about lasers coming out of God's eyes when I read that line. That's not what's happening. Thine eye diffused, not a laser, a quickening ray. It's God's illumination. I woke the dungeon, flamed with light. Suddenly, because God's looking my direction, he's giving me illumination, the darkness that I was in is now light. I can see around me. He says, my chains fell off and my heart was free. I rose, I went forth and I followed thee. That's the idea of God's regenerative glance, your direction. It's God saying, your mind, open your eyes, let me show you what you've been missing. And so suddenly you realize I'm in a prison. I'm chained. I, I'm, I'm struck down because of my sin. I can't, I can't do what I want to do. I am bound under the law. And that's a biblical concept. That's Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held, look at this, captive, captive under the law. And then he uses the word imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian like a, you know, a jail guardian looking outside and saying, I'm holding you here until Christ comes, in order that we might be justified, not by the law, made right before God by faith. He continues, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, praise God, for in Christ in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. It's faith. And for as many of you, uh, as, many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And this is the baptism that does save. Remember, you were asked, I think this morning, uh, does baptism save you? And you would say, this is the one that saves. This is the one we're talking about. For For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. This is the one that saves. You're placed into him. And this is the faith that brings you in a right relationship with God. You need to understand that faith is the foundation of your relationship with him. That's what Jesus is getting at. Don't think about yourself trying to do a quid pro quo with God. It's faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. I'm so thankful that as you guys were in there, the three of you got to baptize this morning, you didn't say, now I'm living a life good enough for God. All of you pointed to Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. And I'm so grateful because that's the point. That's the point of the preaching. Your faith is the foundation of your relationship with God. Now, faith, not in faith, okay? Not faith in faith. It's faith in a who? Jesus, okay? faith in Your faith is only as good as the object you place it in. Faith in Jesus. And that's why we have verses like this, not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from, hev- from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith is the foundation of our relationship with God. It's the foundation. It's the thing that not only draws us to salvation in Christ, it's what keeps us there. When you have your, okay, when you're having a super bad day, you've, you've sinned in ways that you thought, man, I haven't done this in a long time. I can't believe that I'm backtracking in this way. I've said or done things that I should not have said or done and Lord, am I even a Christian? At that moment, I don't say, man, I must not be a Christian because I had a bad day. I say, thank you, God, that Jesus is in my place and my trust is in him and not in my performance. Praise God for that. And you know what that does? When I take my eyes off of me and I start looking at the Christ and saying, he's enough, he's the one who died in my place, I can now be free to do what? To confess my sin, and not only that, but to be obedient, I can say, okay, God, my faith now liberates me to be obedient to you because I know I'm not performing. I know this is not me on a hamster wheel. I'm saying, God, I trust Jesus to stand in my place. And because I trust him to stand in my place now, the chains are off. I'm free to serve you, God. Erin Workmeister, during her baptism testimony, said that she now wanted to read her Bible. It wasn't a checkbox for her. It wasn't her trying to say, okay, God, I guess I have to do this because you really want this. This is God, I want to please you and I get to please you. That's the heart of a Christian. Her faith has liberated her obedience, not mandated it. It's different because even though we would say God commands us to do his will. Paul talks about us in terms of slaves. At one time, you were slaves to unrighteousness, slaves to your lust your pornography, slaves to your lying tongue, slaves to your gossip, slaves to all the, the greediness and the jealousy that you felt. But he says, now you are slaves of Christ, a.k.a. slaves to righteousness. And guess what? It is now your desire as a Christian and your duty to lovingly and joyfully serve your master. We get to serve him, not we have to. If you're still in a have-to state of mind, you're going to doubt your salvation till you till you die. Because the get-to state of mind is what an incredible blessing we have in Christ—to have a Savior who has lived and died in our place, and now I get to serve Him. I want to read my Bible. I want to pray. I want to serve people well. Dogs sometimes need shot collars, right? Sometimes they need to be confined to an area because they're dumb, and you know they don't know how to stay in there. Still better than cats. But dogs who have been trained to love their master and respect the master don't need the shot collar. They don't need the gated fence. This is not true of all dogs, obviously, but by and large, a dog that's been trained, like, they love the master. Oh, I don't want to leave the master. The master comes home. He shakes his tail. The master gets up. He's like excited. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> it's a terrible analogy. I know we're calling us all dogs. But it's our response toward God. Like, yeah, I love God. I, I, whatever, you, whatever you want, God, I want to do that. Not because I know I need to do that. I guess in some sense I could say that. Yeah, I need to, right? I need to do, he's God, I'm not. But I get to serve him. I get to love him. Where does that come from? Faith in Christ. You want assurance of your salvation? Put your trust in Christ. You want to up your sanctification game? Put your trust in Christ. Stop looking at you and start looking at him and feel liberated From the law. And when that happens, you will fulfill the law because you desire that by his spirit. Jesus says to the scribe, you're almost there, but you're not quite. Almost there. Almost, almost, almost. But you're not there yet. The reason why is because he wants us, like he wanted the scribe, to turn and trust in Jesus. Now, one last thing here I want to point out. In this particular text, I told you this is the third of three challenges toward Jesus. Jesus is being tested Wednesday of Passion Week, Jesus is having these guys test his knowledge, test his response, so they can expose him. The first test came in verses 13 and 14, just a few verses before our text this morning. They sent to him some Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. That's the whole purpose. I want to trap him, how they, how they can get him. In verse 14, they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're, and I can see they're saying this, well, you know, kind of like they don't mean this. Teacher, we know that you are true and you care about no one's opinion, For you are not swayed by appearances, but teach the way of God. Okay, wink, wink, right? Here we go. Therefore, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Jesus answers brilliantly, and you should go read that. That's the first one. Jesus answers it, nails it. Second time, Sadducees come to him and say, Hey, Jesus, in the resurrection, when the seven husbands who died and the wife rise again, whose wife will she be? For she has had seven. Jesus answers that. And again, you should go read that. Answers brilliantly. And of course, a third one is the one that we looked at today, which is the greatest commandment. Jesus answers. Now, at the end of this, I want to point out to you the very last part of verse 34. It says this, and after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Why? Well, because Jesus squashed their terrible questions. Not only were most of them insincere, but when he answered them, he answered them flawlessly. He was perfect in wisdom and his wisdom crushed them. It's kind of like with the Passover lamb, if you guys came to service last week and we looked at Exodus 12, one of the jobs of, uh, of the family was to inspect the lamb. Is the lamb perfect enough? And by perfect enough, I said, is there no blemish? Bones aren't broken? Is it a valuable lamb? Uh, the words that the speaker uses, is the lamb perfect and precious? Is the, is the lamb perfect and precious? And in a very similar sense, Jesus is being inspected. Is is he perfect and precious? Well, we find out quickly that Jesus, in fact, is perfect because the smartest of the smartest are unable to thwart his wisdom. You need to admire that about Christ. Point number three, admire the perfection of Christ. We're going to look at his wisdom in a moment, but I want to point out to you that the perfection of Christ in a few different areas. In fact, when we look at perfect things, make us feel good, don't they? <laughs> One of my kids was born and the nurse was like, oh, 10 fingers, 10 toes. He's perfect. I said, that's a low bar. Come on. Is that it? I mean, can we check the heart and other things that are important? I mean, I know what she was trying to say, but my point is we like things that are perfect. There's channels that are devoted to this, YouTubes that, you know, we like perfect things. But Jesus in his perfection shows us what it means to be truly perfect. We might have moments of perfection, but Jesus has an eternity of perfection. Jesus has perfect knowledge of God. Perfect knowledge of God. Oh, we didn't talk about this and we don't have time for this, but there's a difference. Okay, think about this. Adam and Eve in the garden, did they have perfect knowledge of God? In your head, answer that question. Adam and Eve in the garden, did they have perfect knowledge of God? they were perfect. They were in the garden. They walked and talked with God. Did they have perfect knowledge? I would say yes, but not perfect in the way that you might be thinking. Perfect in accuracy, but not perfect and perfectly accurate, not perfectly comprehensive. So that's the difference I'm trying to paint here. Jesus as a man, he was God in the flesh, had to learn and grow. In fact, Jesus, when we think about Jesus, we just think, oh, he's just using his God card, right? His ace of spades is, I'm God in the flesh. I know everything. Boom. He doesn't do that, though. Scriptures repeatedly point to the fact that Jesus actually had to grow. Jesus says, it says the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Look at that. He became strong. He didn't come out of Mary's womb and suddenly say, I am the Son of God. Look at me. It would have been really cool, but he didn't do that, at least that we know of. I'm pretty confident that didn't happen because we have texts like this where it also says Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus increased. How does that happen if Jesus is fully God? Well, because he's also what? Fully, man, he's human. Jesus, like you, grew in his humanity. Jesus didn't just lay down his divinity card the moment he came out of the womb, he is fully divine, but he never denied his humanity. He embraced his humanity, which is why we can have verses like the one in Hebrews that says that through his suffering, he learned perfection. You ever struggle with that verse? Like, what? Isn't he already perfect though? He's God. It's because he's also fully human. And in his humanity, he did not deny his divinity, but he, Hebrew, Philippians chapter 2 says that he set it aside and that he emptied himself by taking on the form of the servant. I would love for you to write down your notes, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Don't have time to talk about that, but just know that that's a relevant text to what I think is happening here. And the point I want to make with Isaiah 11, verse 2, is that the kind of favor that he had with God, I believe, based on what I'm seeing here, is that he had the favor of the Holy Spirit from his very inception, which is what empowered him to live a life of perfection from the very beginning. And the same spirit that empowered Jesus is the spirit that you and I have now. So when we look at Jesus, we can't say, well, he's just God. He can do whatever he wants. We could say, Jesus, in obedience to the spirit throughout his whole life, lived according to the spirit's direction. Jesus is perfect and knowledge of God. He's also perfect in love of God. Jesus never had a moment where he felt anything less. He had anything less than perfect love of God. His heart, his mind, and his body was always exercised in perfect fulfillment of love of God. And by the way, love of people, did he not prove that as well? Not only did Jesus love those who loved him, but who did he also die for? Jesus died for his enemies. Romans 5.8. Does, does, it, does Romans 5:8 tell us anything about that? Yeah, it tells us that Jesus didn't die for the godly. He didn't die for the the awesome, the rich, the powerful, the good-looking. Jesus died for the ungodly and the sinner. And of course, his perfect wisdom on display with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. Jesus' perfect wisdom was on full display, which Proverbs 21:30 says this: Proverbs 21:30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. Jesus, I think, is making it evident by his demeanor and especially in these interactions. I am the perfect Lamb of God who is about to be slain at your hands coming this Friday. This is a preview of what's to come. I don't know the song, so let me just throw it out here and just say this. Ariana Grande has a song that's Almost is Never Enough. And I think that's a really good title for your relationship with God. Almost is is never enough. Perfect tens before God is perfect obedience, passive, active. And the only one who fulfilled God's commands perfectly is Jesus himself. You want to be right with God and not, I don't know where Kobe is. I have no no information that he was ever a professor of the faith. You have no clue what happens outside these doors. Your heart is beating right now by God's gracious command. And in a moment, he could say, you're done. Brain aneurysm. Boom, you're gone. Like, I'm not trying to fear monger. My point is never to do that with you guys. I want to be honest with you. I care about you. And so I care that what's most important in your life is settled. That you are right with God. That you don't think in your mind, let me just fulfill God's command and stand before him and applaud myself for all of my goodness and my greatness. Because the point of Christianity is not to make you feel good about yourself. It's to make you feel good about Jesus the one who lived and died in our place. If you haven't put your trust in him today, now's the time. And then when you go home, go look at the Twitter feed, go look at YouTube, go see if you can find information about Kobe. Because again, I have little doubt about that. But what a, shock that's, what a shock that is, right? I wish you could have seen your faces when I said, hey, Kobe's dead. What, what? He's so young. He's got so much of his life ahead of him. Well, it doesn't seem like he does. And the point I'm, I'm making with him is that you never, ever know. You never know when you're going to meet meet your maker let's pray